<laughs> you might say that I have been something of a wisdom seeker since I was a young child. An avid reader since the time I learned to read, I had this feeling that there was this almost magical something out there with all of those many attributes that you heard about in the wisdom of Solomon, that something I could find, learn about, and then carry with me. A kind of secret knowledge that would help guide my life and give me insights that would possibly allow me to transcend the mundane concerns of life, to rise above it all, not in an arrogant way, but, you know, a spiritual way, and allow me to, as the wisdom of Solomon said, be free from care. My first real passion in this search was the work of Khalil Gibran, a Lebanese-American writer, poet, and visual artist. A copy of The Prophet showed up in our living room when I was maybe 10 or 11, probably by way of one of my older brothers. And I was taken with the ethereal sketch on the cover, a portrait that seemed to exude wisdom. And I read through the book as best I could, thinking that while the Bible, which I was raised to believe was the ultimate source of wisdom, while the Bible seemed to wander off into strange and often troubling stories and endless genealogies and impenetrable descriptions of rituals, here was a book that seemed laser-focused on imparting wisdom. There was a loose framework of a story of a prophet who is leaving his village forever, the people gathering and mourning his departure, and the woman who first welcomed him there and who first recognized his wisdom meeting up with him as he walks toward the ship that will take him away. Yet this we ask ere you leave us, she says, that you speak to us and give us of your truth. And we will give it unto our children and they unto their children and it will not perish. The prophet agrees to stay but asks what it is he should talk to them about. Speak to us of love, she says. And the prophet speaks. And what of marriage, master? And he answers. Speak to us of children, says a young mother, and he speaks of children. Of giving, says a rich man. Speak to us of eating and drinking, says the keeper of an inn. Of clothes, says the tailor. Of buying and selling, says the merchant. Of joy and sorrow, of crime and punishment, of freedom. And the prophet responds to each of these requests and more chapter by chapter through the book, speaking humbly, calmly, clearly, poetically, offering these pearls of, well, wisdom. How cool is that? And reading this is when one might say that I became something of a wisdom seeker though that quickly became mixed up with the overwhelming urge that grabs some young boys to collect things. I went to Sanford's bookstore in downtown Cedar Rapids, Iowa, one of those family-owned, multi-purpose types of stores that no longer exist, an interesting combination of office supplies and art supplies, and down in the basement 
a quirky collection of books from mass market classics in racks on the wall to hardcovers spread across tables, including Khalil Gibran, all of Khalil Gibran, the garden of the prophet, the wanderer, the madman, the forerunner, sand and foam, all with those ethereal drawings of Gibran's on the cover, not only portraits, but interesting figures occupying a seemingly mystical realm that beckoned with the promise of wisdom. Odd kid that I was, I saved up allowance money to buy one Gibran book at a time, for a period in my life and took pleasure in the way the spines matched on the shelf. I started my own little book of sayings, trying to mimic Gibran's tone and quiet authority. I felt assured always that the next book I bought would have deeper, wider, even more profound insights that would certainly bode well for how my life would unfold. And then... Life just kept happening. And in the throes of adolescence and then the teenage years and then young adulthood, I had more questions than answers and questions, it seemed, that didn't even fit in the pages of the prophet, partly because I could barely articulate them. It wasn't that Gibran was any less wise or profound, but I started thinking, if this one author offered wisdom, think of the number of other authors out there that must have insights to share. And I started reading wider and searching further and collecting more and more of what I could find of wisdom from the world's religions, as our source says, and from philosophers and poets and songwriters and musicians And one might imagine that I thereby became very wise. (laughs) Notice I said one might imagine that because that is not what happened exactly. But I think I did maybe learn something about wisdom. You see, I feel something of that early naive collector's enthusiasm when I read Our third source, the living tradition which we share draws from wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. Wisdom from the world's religions. Imagine that. We get to draw from all of them, which means I need to get busy. Think of all those books I have not yet read, those scriptures I have not yet explored, those truths I have not yet learned, those sayings I have not yet encountered. There is great excitement for me in the prospect of surrounding myself with stacks of books that open windows into all those religious traditions. And yet, I have come to know that none of that can make me wise. None of that can even necessarily make the wisdom useful. Rather than striving to be a true seeker of wisdom, I can easily opt for being a collector of wisdom. I know it's there in the world's religions and in the world itself, bits of wisdom everywhere, like the story last week about a Nazi broke the clay pot and it scattered wisdom across everything. I know it's there, but how do I effectively access it? 
If wisdom from the world's religions is a source of our tradition, there must be some way to recognize wisdom and to use it to allow it to inspire me in my ethical and spiritual life as the source says. But first, what do we mean by wisdom? It seems to be different from something more or less than knowledge. I say less because as I listened to people sharing at Month of Sundays last week, and as I listened to wise people talk about wisdom, it seems like wisdom, unlike knowledge, is not about accumulation so much, but often about stripping away, simplification, clarity. Scott Taylor said in the call to worship to peel away the voices that leave us lost and return again to that wisdom within which senses and signals when wholeness is near. Philosopher William James reminds us that the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. This feels especially important in an age when we are inundated with so much information So quickly, author David Orr in The Nature of Design, Ecology, Culture, and the Human Intention bemoans this era of what he calls fast knowledge and calls for a reorientation of society where wisdom, not cleverness, is the aim of education, where we take the time to truly assimilate what we know, where we take the time to discern what is significant. I felt that resonating across many centuries with Confucius, who said to learn and never think, that's delusion. But to think and never learn, that is perilous indeed. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer differentiates between wisdom and knowledge, saying to understand reality is not the same as to know about outward events. It is to perceive the essential nature of things. The best informed is not necessarily the wisest. Indeed, there is a danger that precisely in the multiplicity of his knowledge, he will lose sight of what is essential. And then he says, on the other hand, knowledge of an apparently trivial detail quite often makes it possible to see into the depth of things. Both are important. Wisdom and knowledge are interrelated. Knowledge can inform wisdom. Wisdom helps to guide knowledge, but they are different. And then I ran across this quote from Montaigne, which crystallized it for me. We can be knowledgeable with the knowledge of others, but we cannot be wise with the wisdom of others. Dang. There's the rub. That's why being a wisdom collector, surrounding myself with the undoubtedly profound insights of others, cannot make me wise. It doesn't work that way. Those words can point me toward truths, but those words somehow need to be realized. Otherwise, it's like buying a phone with no service. It has the capability of making calls, but the potential does me no good unless I find a way to activate it. Or it is like expecting that pictures of someone else's meal can satisfy my hunger. Not so much. 
I need to search out the real thing for myself if I expect to be nourished. I cannot subcontract my pursuit of wisdom. A quotation attributed to Greek philosopher Heraclitus. Applicants for wisdom, do what I have done. Inquire within. Don't you love that? Brief and to the point, I thought of putting that on our wayside pulpit. Looking for wisdom, inquire within. Although I realized it could result in all sorts of unfortunate misunderstandings. But while wisdom is everywhere around us, accessing that wisdom, allowing it to inspire our ethical and spiritual lives, that is an inside job. It must be realized, not just thought about, and then take up residence within us. Wisdom, it seems, is only wise when it is reflected in how we live. Confucius, who I had never really read before, Popular culture's epitome, certainly of the wise teacher, said to learn and then in its due season put what you have learned into practice. Isn't that still a great pleasure? It doesn't stop with learning or knowing or hearing or having or collecting wise words. It takes practice. Each day I ask three things of myself, he says. Have I been trustworthy in all that I've done for other people? Have I stood by my word in dealing with friends? Have I practiced all that I've been taught? Practicing wisdom, isn't that a great pleasure? Asked Confucius. Wisdom, like so many things, only becomes real in the practice. And wisdom, finally, Now that you've had to listen to me go on and on about it, wisdom, according to some very wise people, cannot even be adequately described in words. I guess I could have started there and saved us all some time. Heraclitus again says, Wisdom is the action of the mind beyond all things that may be said. The Diamond Sutra says the Buddha has no doctrine to convey the truth is ungraspable and inexpressible. It neither is or is nor is not. It neither is nor is not. We move quickly into the land of paradox. One should cherish the thought of attaining perfect wisdom, the Diamond Sutra says, while realizing that there is no self to attain perfect wisdom. Abu Yazid al-Bastami, founder of Sufism, said, This thing we tell of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. We should not, in other words, ever delude ourselves into thinking wisdom is something we can have. Beware of anyone who deems themselves wise. Even Confucius didn't accept that title. And I love his humor here, which I think must somehow, humor is a quality that must somehow be bound up with wisdom. He says, am I a man of great wisdom? Hardly. Even when a simple person brings me a question, my mind goes utterly blank. I just thrash it out until I've exhausted every possibility. It is somehow comforting to think of the great Confucius's mind going blank. To think of him thrashing it out with all the rest of us 
as we look for answers, as we make decisions, as we live through sorrows, as we seek guidance. If we would access wisdom from the world, in the words of our upcoming hymn, let there be moments when we turn away and deaf to all confusing outer din, intently listen for the voice within. In quietness and solitude, we find the soundless wisdom of the deeper mind. Applicants for wisdom, do what wise people have done. Inquire within.